Hey guys, super excited today. No, really, like I know I say that most weeks, but really today is um, really exciting. Avery Carl didn't invent the short-term rental industry, but she definitely popularized it a lot. She's educated tons and tons of people for free on how to manage their own short-term rentals. She's partially responsible for a lot of the boom in uh, the Panhandle and the Smoky Mountains in the SCR industry. Incredible background. And I mean that in the best ways, from a soccer player to a bartender, to marketing in Nashville, to real estate. She's just invented and reinvented herself over and over and over. And I'm so happy to have her join us today. Thank you for joining us, Avery Carl. We are helping owners create cash flow and pay down their mortgage, while our guests feel like a millionaire for the time that they stay with us. It's no secret that focusing on others' outcome ultimately leads to more income for you and your company. Welcome to the Good Endeavor Short-Term Rental Show. Awesome. Avery. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. After that intro, you know, obviously a lot of folks who are tuning into this podcast know who you are because you kind of gave the short-term rental industry a moniker and kind of got a lot of folks into it. I would say you're a big reason for the success of a lot of folks, um, at least the education that you've had and the experience that they've had working with the short-term shop and your agents. But if we go back a little bit farther, can you kind of tell the audience like a little bit more about Avery, like things we don't know, like where did you grow up and um, what was, what did childhood look like for you? I grew up in a small town, small SEC town in Mississippi called Starkville, Mississippi. It's where Mississippi State University is. Um, my childhood was pretty idyllic, you know, no, no trauma or anything like that. <laughs> My parents were great. I owe a lot to them in terms of, I mean, everybody owes a lot to their parents, but mine, I feel like did an exceptional exemplary job that my husband and I tried to emulate with our kids every day of just, you know, being there for us. No soccer game was ever missed. No. I mean, sometimes my dad was like, not only was he at the soccer game, he, I was a goalkeeper, so he would move his chair away from my mom and all the other parents to be on the goal line so he could stare directly at me, and it drove me absolutely nuts. Um, but so my parents That's are awesome. very, yeah, very present, uh, wonderful parents with all three of us. That's great. So were your parents entrepreneurs themselves? Uh, yes. So my dad is a chiropractor, and he's always owned his own practice. He's never worked with anybody else. My mom uh, was a stay-at-home parent. And both of my grandfathers also own their own businesses. One started a number of different businesses over the years, mostly machinery businesses uh, and hmm. companies. And then my other grandfather is an actuary. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's a smart dude. So actuary, I mean, obviously that can kind of feed into deal analysis a little bit if, if you've gotten any of those genes, but... I did not. <laughs> not, not. One, no, not one even little piece of those genes. <laughs> That's great. Did any of them have anything to do with real estate? 
No, nobody did. So real estate really was like kind of a, a venture out for us, myself and my husband. But after working in three or four corporate jobs and it just kind of not working, I kind of realized like, oh, I don't really, I wasn't raised around this. I don't really have any role models who went to a job and worked for somebody else and worked their way up the corporate ladder. Everybody had their own businesses. And that kind of gave made me feel a little better about myself. Like, oh, well, you know, I mean, you weren't raised to to know how to do this. You don't know what this looks like. This is outside your comfort zone. So let's yeah. go, you know, do something a little more entrepreneurial. That's great. And so you worked in the corporate world kind of out of college, right? And then um, you did like your first short-term rental deal. Is that well, kind of how it went? Not exactly. So there was a big gap between college and the short-term rental world. Be- I mean, in the corporate world, because uh, I graduated in May of 2009, which was like the worst time for a new graduate mm-hmm. graduate with a soft major like I had communications from UT. So I had been playing in bands all through college, touring, stuff like that. So I said, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing this and I'll bartend until something happens with the economy or an opportunity arises. So that's what I did for a good five years. Uh, did in Austin, Los Angeles, New York was most recent, which was a long, long way in the past now. And then Nashville, I moved to Nashville to get my master's. My husband and I moved there really just to get out of New York City. Uh, it was just getting too hard to be able to live there. Nashville was easier living at the time. Now Nashville's just as expensive as New York and went back to get my master's. Then that was in 20, 2014 and 2016. During my master's and after I graduated was when I kind of stepped into the corporate world. Interesting. So your first corporate job, what was that? It was a sales job for a tech company called Service Source. Worked for the account I was on was Pitney Bowes Software. They make like big copier machines mm-hmm. and like the big machines that you would have in office buildings. And I actually did really well at that. And I tried to fight. I was like, I do not want to be in sales. Sales sucks. I don't want to talk to people who don't <laughs> want to be talking to me all day. But I was actually really good at it. I've got all my bonuses, hit all my quotas. And I left that job because I thought I wanted to do, and I did want to do marketing. So I took a mm-hmm. marketing job for a big email marketing company called Axiom. And I was doing email marketing for places like Walmart or Marriott and Star, was it Starwood Hotels? I can't even remember. It's been so yeah. long, but a bunch of hotel companies and Walmart. And then last, the, mo- the most recent one, which again, way far in the past now, uh, what I was really angling towards, I finally got was to get a marketing job in the music business in Nashville, because I thought, well, you know, I'm an ex-musician and now I've got an MBA going to, you know, mm-hmm. get myself a big girl job. There will probably be a lot of people really similar to me in that business. And that's, I think that's where I want to be. And I really did not want to be there. I thought I did, but it wasn't a lot of like ex-musician creative types who are now in the yeah. business world. It was a bunch of dorks who wanted to be able to say, <laughs> oh, I was in a room with Keith Urban last night, or I was in a room with Jason Aldean or whatever stupid country music person is, is in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that, it was just listening to a bunch of people name drop all the time, making like $35,000 a year. I'm like, man, I don't even think this is cool. <laughs> I don't want to do marketing for all these stupid country bands that I don't even like. So, you know, maybe 
become an entitled millennial jerk, but I realized that it was not, it was not my kind of people. It was, it was people that wanted to say they were close to, to some kind of celebrity. And that just was not my jam. Isn't that funny? Yep. Are you naturally an introvert or an extrovert? Introvert. Big time. Oh, yeah. Yes. So sales, they say in sales, the hardest doors to open is the car door <laughs> to yep. kind of get out the door and get in there and keep going. Was that, I mean, was that just a big obstacle for you to overcome? But once you got in front of the person, you were okay? Yeah. Yeah. So I hate making the call, but once I'm on the call, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good. So yeah. I think that bartending and waiting tables for so many years during college and after college really helped with that, with being able to talk to all different kinds of people with all different kinds of personalities and being able to get them to the result that they want. Uh, I think that really, really played a big part in being able to do a sales job effectively. It's just dealing with different types of personalities. It's interesting how people lump sales and marketing in together when they're really just totally different. And yeah. you, you lived both of them. In a former life, we had an IT company and um, I was responsible for the sales arm of our company, but I never really understood or appreciated marketing like I do now that I'm in the short-term rental business. Can you touch on that a little bit? Like just the, just the map. I mean, there's such a chasm between those two. Yeah. I mean, they are wildly different. I think they're both technically, you know, front, front of house, front end mm -hmm. uh, workflows, but without marketing, there is no sales. So the marketing is what gets the people to realize, oh, I think I'd need this. And the sales is just really connecting those dots. So, you know, you're not, when you're in sales, you're not selling something to people that they don't want. You're selling something to people that they do want and just making, helping them understand how it can help them rather than being like, hey, you know, you want this blue pen. I know you don't like blue pens, but this is the blue pen that you want. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's the marketing really tees up the sale. Um, but it's it really is what warms the the person or the end user up in order for them to say, you know what, I do think this can help me. Let me talk to someone about how this can help me. And that's when the the sales comes in. Yeah. So the whole country music marketing thing with the groupies slash that <laughs> <laughs> um, you didn't love that as much. So kind of take me beyond that. Is that kind of when you wanted to transition into um, real estate? So I didn't necessarily want to transition into real estate mm -hmm. specifically. I knew I just wanted to do something. I knew we wanted to have kids at some point. And so that was kind of on the horizon. And I was trying to think like, oh man, this boss is not going to be the kind of person that understands if a kid is sick and you have to stay home. Yeah. And even though none of it was anything that had to be done face to face, uh, I just really wanted to have some kind of flexibility so that I wasn't just putting my kids um, in daycare from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sometimes it would take me till 7 to get home just because Nashville traffic was crazy. Uh, so I wanted to be able to spend time with my family, but also work and contribute. So I uh, I am the first woman in my family to ha like have a career uh, for in generations. You know, I'm a, from a small town in Mississippi, so that sounds really crazy to people who weren't raised in the South. But uh, in the South, that's not it's not crazy at all. Anyway. When we moved from New York to Nashville, we were, we're really looking to move out to the country because we were coming from yeah. Brooklyn. We had thousands of neighbors and our agent at the time was really trying to get us to buy something uh, in East Nashville, which was really fast appreciating. And she said, you know, people are buying these houses and a year later they're selling them for 
70, $80,000 more than what they paid. We said, no, we don't want to do that. Let's go buy something out in the country. So we did. And uh, uh, that house was awesome. But we had a little bit of money left and we said, and I was super into Dave Ramsey at the time, which I'm not anymore. But at the time, <laughs> uh, I said, well, you know, maybe we could take this little bit of extra money that we have, buy this one of these houses and let the renters pay the mortgage. So it's not any more money out of our pocket. And then in 20 years, when our future kids need to go to college, we can just sell that house. It will have appreciated a lot and we can just pay for their college out of that appreciation, which is a really stupid reason to invest in real estate. But we didn't know any better. We bought a house and luckily it cash flowed a thousand bucks over the mortgage every month. Uh, mortgage was like 650 bucks a month. House was 122,000. And we noticed when we got that first check, we were like, man, this is about the same amount that my paychecks are after deductions and everything. So we bought one house and have doubled what my income is. We need to do this again. Wow. So yeah. So at that point we said, okay, we're going to read everything we can, listen to all the podcasts. And at the time there was really just bigger pockets and that was it. Yeah. Um, and then of course all the Kiyosaki books. This was what, 16, 15? Uh, 15. Yeah. 15. And uh, so we educated ourselves on real estate investing. And then again, we had like one little down payment left for a single family home. And we said, well, what can we buy that's going to make us the most amount of money the fastest? So we landed on short-term rentals. We did not want to do that in Nashville because the regulations there are just too volatile. Yeah, so we'd just been on vacation to the Smokies in, in uh, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge area. And we said, well, we stayed in a cabin there. So did everybody else. Somebody owns these cabins. Why can't that be us? Uh, so we went and bought one, figured out how to manage it remotely. Back then in 2015, there were not courses. There were not gurus. There weren't a thousand people on Instagram with little yellow subtitles telling you a bunch of stuff about short-term rentals. We just had to figure <laughs> it out. Um, so we did. And long story short, one turned into five over the course of about a year and a half. Five and a half years later, we've got 250 doors. Uh, eight of them are short-term rentals. The rest are single-family, multifamily, long-term. Um, and then in terms of the real estate agent side, I kind of fought that too. I got my license mainly just to do our own deals so that I could have a little more speed. And you know, if I found something at 11 o'clock at night, I could just look at all the details on the MLS and maybe write up an offer and send it what, rather than having to like call and ask somebody, wait till mm -hmm. in the morning when the realtor's awake. So, and also my husband is, you know, we're buying in the South. My husband is very much a New Yorker and sometimes mm -hmm. his personality does not work uh, with, <laughs> with Southern people. What happened then is just friends were like, hey, you're making how much on that cabin in the Smokies? Help me buy one. Teach me how to do that. And the short-term shop was kind of born out of that. Eventually started opening, opening up more markets. We started in the Smokies and now we've got 20 markets and we sold a billion dollars in real estate last year. What an incredible story. There was a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just going back, going back, like your primary, it sounds like your primary driver was like, I want to have kids and I want to be, I want to know them. I want to spend time with my kids and I don't want somebody else telling me when I'm, when I can and when I can't spend time with my kids. Right. Is it fair to say that was like one of your primary drivers? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Very so short-term shop was, was born. Um, you kind of grew, is that like a, what's the underlying brokerage house? Is that EXP? Yes. So uh, if you guys are not familiar with the real estate sales world, 
Uh, we are a team underneath EXP, so kind of like a brokerage within a brokerage. Yeah. Has it always been EXP? Because EXP seems to have exploded the past few years. Uh, I bounced around a little yeah. bit, but EXP had everything that I needed to. And there's a few other brokerage that, brokerages that'll work too, but so I bounced around a little bit when we were only in Tennessee with different local brokerages, but it ended up, yeah. it had to be a big national brokerage to have the access to the MLSs that I needed to be in multiple states. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's, that's always fascinating to me because I'm, I have a lot of um, realtor friends who have shops kind of nationwide and they've built this brand kind of like you have. And it's just, I think it's awesome. I love to see it. So you start out with this one short-term rental. And then do you just start buying more short-term rentals or do you go into long-term rentals kind of hand in hand and it's kind of a balance all the way through? But So our very first one was long-term. The next five were short-term. At that point, we had enough cash flow coming in that we could go knock out a few long-terms here and there without really putting too big of a dent in the bank account. Because keep in mind, one long-term door is significantly cheaper than one short-term door. At least, you know, where we're doing it because we're focusing only on on vacation markets for short term. So um, the next probably 20 were long-term duplexes in Chattanooga. And then Chattanooga kind of started drying up for deals. Um, we bought a short term in Destin, Florida, which is probably the, the best purchase that we've made so far. Uh, it was foreclosed on twice. We, oh, wow. we got it for $650. Yeah. And the first, so what happened, it was foreclosed on the first person. Uh, they were going to flip it and they thought it was just going to be a cosmetic flip, but then it turned out there are these two balconies on the back that they weren't put in right. So the entire back of the house was rotted because they were leaking. So by the time they got through all that, they didn't have the money to finish the cosmetic stuff. So that just left us with the cosmetic stuff. So uh, we probably put about 50 into that. A house is easily worth 2.3 now. And it makes, wow. yeah, it grosses between... 160 and 175,000 a year. Um, and then from there, to get back to your question, uh, we just started, we kind of have our three little machines rolling at all times. So if a good short-term pops up, we'll buy it. Uh, if a good long-term single family pops up in the markets that we look in for those, we'll buy it. If a good multifamily pops up in those markets, uh, we'll buy that. So now we're just kind of looking at all three asset classes and uh, just buying where the deal makes sense. Yeah. Do you like now um, when you purchase, are you using normal everyday bank financing? No, not anymore. So uh, you can only have 10 conventional loans per person. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can only use a conventional loan on a single family anyway, but most of the time, if we're not using conventional, then it's a uh, local commercial bank. Okay. So it is it's normal everyday commercial lending, not necessarily residential lending like like Right. Yeah, yeah. So like market. local banks and credit unions that that do commercial loans. So it's it's really hard to do those on short-term rentals, but mm -hmm. for um multifamily and single family long term, especially if you're doing it at volume, it's typically not too hard to find as long as you can, you know, show them a track record and a business plan. Are you, um, do you prefer to go that way? I've, I've just heard more and more about folks using creative financing, like subject to loans due to the interest rate hike. You know, if somebody's got a three and a half percent loan that you're buying from, a lot of folks are coming in and making offers subject to, you know, their, their particular loan. Is that, 
Are you seeing a lot more of that happening now? I mean, you you kind of play both sides of the coin. You're playing the seller and the buyer. So um, I would I would think you you see a lot of deals. Yeah, yeah. So we see where we see sellers willing to do that is with sellers who maybe did not run conservative enough numbers in 2021 and 22 or maybe they're not managing very well and they just really, really want to get rid of it, uh, they'll do the subject to. Most sellers, if they're not in any kind of distress, they're just going to want to take their money and go. Like They don't want to be wrapped up with you for however long while you do subject yeah. payments. Like, I, don't, I sure don't. I've never sat across the, the <laughs> closing table from anybody and said, like, man, I really want to be caught up with you for the next 30 <laughs> years or next five years or however long before you refinance it. Uh, you couldn't pay yeah. me enough. Give me my money and get out of my life. Yeah. Um, You're like, but, did I mention I'm an introvert? I don't want to deal yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we do see more a few a few sellers, just a handful that are willing to do that. And in terms of buyers, it's really the buyers who are, who are just starting out who aren't able to get other types of financing are the types that that works for. So if you can find those two types of buyers and sellers and put them together then that can work wow. really well but there you know there's just a lot to have to work through so a seller is quit claiming their deed to somebody else and still having the mortgage in their name there's a lot of ways that that could go really bad and i'm sure you know i need to have pace morby on my podcast and just ask him yeah. all this stuff i don't know enough about it to say whether you know it's overall good or overall bad i think in certain instances it can be a really good thing for for distressed sellers and for buyers who are really looking to get in the game who can't get other types of financing. But overall, it's not something I want to do on either side. Yeah, I was just curious if you're seeing more offers like that. I have seen a lot of people take it or not a lot. I've seen a few people kind of take advantage of people who want to do subject to. So uh, we had somebody who bought a new construction with us a few years ago and wanted to sell it asked us what we could get for it. We told them. And then they went and marketed it subject to at $175,000 in 2023 over the comp price. So not only is that, and their their uh, rate was not mm -hmm. that good. It wasn't that two or 3%. It was in the fives. Mm -hmm. So this person took on their debt at five something percent. And then, you know, they've got another payment on that 175. and now and they and it's also they're in underwater they are underwater yeah. on that property and they were happy to do it they were happy to buy it because yeah. it was subject to so just because it's subject to or creative financing or off market yeah. not mean it's a good deal you'll run your numbers yeah. yeah obviously we have come a long way since 2016 when you started i remember i probably started in the smokies right right around the time you did and you're light years beyond me but I remember then it was like, you know, just if you paid cash for a house to get 25% was like, it was like the normal deal, yeah. right? Um, not even, even if you didn't take on a mortgage, not, not cash on cash, but if you just paid cash, it was like 25% returns. Obviously, I kind of thought that what is happening now would happen. I just thought it would take a lot longer, but it seemed like once COVID happened, it just blew up really, really fast. For the folks who are bartending in New York now, and they might be moving to Nashville and 
taking a bartending job. Is it possible to to still do what what you did? Oh yeah, yeah. And I people all the time are like, "Well, you bought in a different time." Yeah, I did, but there are markets still that cost that the purchase prices are the same as what I paid in the Smokies when I started and that will make the same amount of money as the properties that I first started with made. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people all day long can say, well, I can't do it because of this, or you, you were able to do it because of X, Y, or Z. There's always a way to do it. You just have to find the right market, the right type of financing. It just takes some work. So it's, it's not, it's definitely doable, but you just have to find the right deals. I was talking to Kenny Bedwell the other day who, you know, Kenny, and he has a company called STR Insights. And it was, it's interesting because there is so much competition in the Smokies and in Destin, Florida. But if you take what they're doing there, like the new construction, because there's so much competition, you still, you got to keep up in your game on your amenities and the look and feel of your house. But if you find a market that's kind of up and coming and you kind of mimic the top end of what they're doing there, you're not one of 3,000. Now you're one of one in an up and coming market. And it seems like a a really good opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, the Western North Carolina mountains, Shenandoah, places like that, Um, even like the, the forgotten coast of Florida, all those areas are big short-term rental markets always have been but there's just not a lot of sophisticated operators there yet that are doing really high-end things. And it doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money to make a property yeah. really high-end. So if you take, yeah, like the Smokies or Destin or Scottsdale or Orlando, some of the things that make properties stand out in those markets and apply it in like a Shenandoah, you're like, you're it. You're the only one. Yeah. You're the only one. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, that's, that's great. So Avery, like now you've got a great portfolio of short-term rentals, a great portfolio of long-term rentals. You've got um, short-term rental shop who's helped probably thousands of people buy uh, their very first short-term rental or multiple short-term rentals. And you've, you're responsible for a lot of the education. If, if somebody wants to say, hey, Avery, I would love for you to coach me. Is that something that you do? Yeah. So, so we have some coaching things. So it just kind of depends. If you're buying a property with us, we have our management Monday coaching that you're allowed. You're like, it's free to you anytime you want to go. It's every Monday, obviously Uh, it's going on right now, actually, as we're recording (laughs) and um, it's all management all the time. We have a few other options. Like we've got a masterclass that meets five weeks for an hour. We've got a few other things brewing that we haven't released yet. But yeah, we, we definitely have some some coaching options. And then, you know, I speak at conferences all the time. So there's lots of ways you can you can find me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just love that you're kind of like a pebble in the in the ocean. You just made a great cascading effect into this industry that's just blown up. What do you think? What do you think is next for the short term rental market? You mentioned that you're in vacation markets only. Mm-hmm. What do you what's your what's your take on the more urban markets that aren't necessarily vacation destinations or are you steering clear of those areas for any reason? Yes, yes. So with my first kind of starting out being in Nashville, which is one of the most heavily regulated, mm-hmm. and I don't mean regulated 
like normal regulations. I mean, like I dealt with, I, we had an office in Nashville. I had four or five clients end up having to sue developers because the way that Nashville works is they can change it at any time that any council member, any city council member can go into their district and down zone those areas, these little areas to not allow short-term rentals anymore, pretty much anytime they want. So it's not like a, here's the rules and this is going to be the rules forever. They change constantly. So with that being my first exposure to a short-term rental market, that's not anything that I want to have to deal with. Uh, I want to be in markets where the the entire economy is dependent on short-term rentals. And uh, there's a few exceptions in the markets that we work in. I, we have a few that I would call vacation-ish that are also urban, but also a big vacation destination. So Orlando, Scottsdale, those mm-hmm. two. Uh, so I'm okay with places like that, but true like non-vacation at all. Like, yes, Nashville has a lot of tourism, but up until 10 years ago, all those tourists stayed in hotels and the hotels in Nashville are very aggressive. The primary homeowners in Nashville are very aggressive and rightfully so. Like I live in a vacation market and I don't want the house next to me to be a short-term rental. Yeah. I'm trying to raise kids, getting a pool in the yeah. backyard. Like I don't want people in and out, like seeing my whole family. I, I get it. I totally yeah. get it. So um, that's why we try to stay in those vacation markets, typically fa- more favorable regulations, uh, more favorable, just primary homeowners. Like I get it. If there are short-term rentals on my street and I'm not angry at them because I chose to live here and that's, yeah. what, the, that's what this market is. So um, yeah, anyway, a lot, uh, no. lot of stuff that you didn't ask about. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, I totally agree with you. Like I get it. If I live there, I would, I would, just like you said, I would feel the exact same way. I don't want strangers in every single day, (laughs) um, kind of looking over the fence and seeing what I'm up to. What do you think is, do you, do you think we're at the tip of the spear for the vacation rental market industry? Or do you think we're, or the short-term rental industry, or do you think we still have, you know, do you think we're pretty far into it now? The tip of the spear was maybe five or six years ago. Um, it's hard to say. I think we're definitely now in the settling in of short-term rentals being an established asset class. So, you know, I think, I think maybe the very tip of the spear was pre COVID when those 50, hundred percent cash on cash return deals were just laying around on the MLS. Uh, So, but now I think that, you know, things are settling in. It's becoming, like I said, an established asset class, like long-term rentals or multifamily, where you're looking more for the opportunity to make something really great than something just really great laying around on the MLS. Yeah. Do you think, and we talked about this um, a little bit a while ago, just talking about commercial lending, but do you think, or do you see any institutional money getting into this space? Like a lot of it's just me and you, like we're individual investors today, but are you seeing institutional money get into it? Yes. So um, it's still very new, but I just got six listings from a fund this morning. Um, from a big one, a very big one that I did not know was even in the space until I got these listings. Um, so it's, I think it's still like tip of the iceberg on the institutional money coming in. I think they've got to figure out um, how they're going to manage it because a lot of times uh, there, there's a disconnect between the management and the fund and mm-hmm. uh, how they want to do it. They end up being, they end up switching managers a lot. Um, 
not being happy with them. So I think once they figure out that piece and maybe it's bringing the management in house so they have some kind of quality control, um, I'm not exactly sure, but I think they're, they're figuring out how to do it because they know this is kind of a blue ocean for them. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of them have been doing single families for a long time. I mean, you've read like Blackstone and all them getting, sure. getting into it. People, primary homeowners getting mad at them for buying up all the the starter homes. So this is definitely something that they're looking at getting into. They're just trying to figure out some of the bits and pieces to make it all work. Yeah. Cause you got to think if institutional money flows into this space, then lenders will follow. Yeah. That's generally how it works because mm-hmm. right now, like you mentioned, it's hard unless you're in a market that really, really understands short-term rentals. It's hard to find good commercial lending um, for these products. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, um, fascinating just to think about, (laughs) obviously we don't know, we don't know what's ahead, but, um, the margins are a little bit better in the short-term rental space versus long-term, probably a little bit less predictable, but, um, we'll see how things go. Yeah, we'll see. What else? How, um, like if, if somebody said, man, I really need to do that. And they really wanted to get in touch with the short-term shop or Avery Carl or any, anybody on your team. What's the best way to reach out to you guys? Sure. So I'm on all social media at the short-term shop, or you can go on our website, the shop.com and click uh, schedule a consultation. So every Thursday we have a live office hours, we call it with me and Luke and our lending partner, Brenna, and where people can just ask any questions that they have about getting into buying, managing, financing short-term rentals. So we have that every Thursday and you can sign up for that on our website. Awesome. Well, thank you, Avery Carl. We really appreciate it. It's good good getting to know you a little better. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. And don't forget about the tools available to subscribers. The Property Manager Self-Assessment Tool, My Property Upgrade Walkthrough List, or the chance to feel like a millionaire for the weekend by checking out one of our own properties in person. It's all available on our website, www.goodendeavorstrshow.com.